Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. in the conference. I'm TNL Radio in New York. We will have Leslie on shortly. I'll stand by, stand by. All right. Um, yes, hi. Yes, go right ahead. This is Leslie. Um, on the gist of freedom. You're listening to uh, my partner today, Stephen on the line. No, no, Miss Nellie Johnson. Okay. No, she's uh, she's out for the week. Oh, okay. And we have my other partner today, Mr. Cecilio Ben. Cecilio. Um, we're working on a project together. Uh, would you like to tell the audience more about it and take it from here? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. So what we are doing is we are we are going to be creating an audio book for The Lincoln Brigade, A Picture History by William Lauren Katz and Mark Crawford, uh, the third edition. So we'll be uh, creating an audio book for that, and we'll be making that available to the public um, at a later time. Um, and we are excited to be engaged in this project, uh, and it should be a fun one. Uh, the Lincoln Brigade is a, a story about a battalion of volunteer fighters who fought against the Spanish Republicans, um, during, oh, sorry, the Spanish Nationals, alongside the Spanish Republicans uh, during the Spanish Civil War. And uh, so we are excited to bring to present to you this uh, audiobook and this project that we are engaging in. And over the next several weeks, we'll be reading a chapter a week. Um, and when the broadcasting gets to you, and we hope that you will enjoy uh, the readings. Okay. Uh, do you want to start off with the intro? Sure. Okay. okay. So, so you can uh, start from the top, and we'll edit it and take it from there. Okay. So 
Brigade, A Picture History, by William Warren Katz and Mark Crawford. Introduction. During the Spanish Civil War, some 2,800 enthusiastic young American men and women left home to save the Republic of Spain from a military takeover. Joined by 35,000 volunteers from 52 other countries, they formed a unique army. It was the only time in history a global volunteer force assembled to fight for an ideal, democracy. In a prelude to World War II, these young people battled armies dispatched by the fascist dictators Hitler and Mussolini. The U.S. volunteers were the youngest, with the least combat experience. The artists, poets, and visionaries among them outnumbered trained soldiers. The gallantry of these volunteers from many nations did not move leading democratic governments to help, but it influenced artists the world over. It inspired Picasso's celebrated painting, Guernica, and such classic novels as Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls and Andre Malraux's Man's Hope. It sent a shockwave to a generation of young writers on both sides of the Atlantic. George Orwell, Stephen Spender, W.H. Auden, John Dos Passos, Langston Hughes, and Pablo Neruda. More books were written about Spain's early scrimmage with fascism than about all of World War I. The story of the U.S. contingent, though part of America's national heritage, has not found its way into many school books history courses. This means few know that their fellow citizens took up arms against Hitler and Mussolini Mussolini before Pearl Harbor, or that these unusual Americans fought in the first U.S. armed force was racially integrated from top to bottom. Rarely more than a battalion in actual strength during any battle, they have been traditionally called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Part 1, Sounds from Distant Battle. Chapter 1, They Shall Not Pass. In 1936, the new democracy in Spain was fighting for its life. For 15 centuries, Spain had been ruled by a backward monarchy. Then, in 48 hours in 1931, it bloodlessly replaced a king with a republic. A weak and divided new government had to battle its past rulers. Rich landlords and aristocratic officers supported by a powerful church. The democracy tried mightily to feed its hungry, raise wages, create a public school system, separate church and state, and begin reforms while the old rulers began to plot a return. There was turmoil and violence in the countryside as landless peasants and landlords fought for control. A battle for equality exploded in cities. Women began to assert their right to divorce and property and to wear trousers. Madrid is a madhouse, said a European visitor. Every man, woman, and child has gone crazy. They cannot have always been like this. The waiters will not take tips. Every man is his fellow equal. 
Landlords and army generals had not given up the fight for power. In villages, their civil guards arrested peasant leaders, broke strikes, and tortured prisoners. The aristocrats drew strength from fascism's rise in Europe. Some plotted with Mussolini for a return of the monarchy. Others saw Hitler as an ally. On February 16, 1936, a popular front alliance of parties won the election. The ancient ruling class of Spain had been decisively defeated, but now it began a vast military conspiracy. Spain's top generals plotted a rebellion, and, only, and on July 18, 1936, they seized weapons in Morocco to overthrow the republic. The generals won support from Germany, Italy, the dictatorship in nearby Portugal. By early August, 40 Nazi and fascist cargo and bomber planes were ferrying rebel General Francisco Franco's armies from Morocco to Seville. By October, rebel trucks with Nazi planes overhead rolled toward Madrid, and the rebels and everyone else believed a quick victory. Civil wars can be brutal, and this one was among the worst. Franco's forces murdered prisoners, Republican sympathizers, and occasionally the enemy wounded. They forced peasant sons into their army. Picking up Nazi ideas, rebel general Quipo de Llano proclaimed by radio in October that Franco fighting a war of Western civilization against the Jews of the world. To counter outside fascist intervention, Republican Spain asked the world for help. Radio Barcelona broadcast this call. Workers and anti-fascists of all lands, we the workers of Spain are poor, but we are pursuing a noble ideal. Our fight is your fight. Our victory is the victory of liberty. We are the vanguard of the international proletariat in the fight against fascism. Men and women of all lands come to our aid. Hundreds of volunteers began to pour over the Pyrenees. Some early arrivals from neighboring France were hard-drinking veterans of World War I. They had little respect for Spain's custom or its women and had to be sent back home. Then a new kind of dedicated soldier arrived. By early November, 2,000 were in Madrid's 1st International Brigade. The original force was made up of German refugees, British machine gunners, an author, a nephew of Winston Churchill, and Puerto Nini, once Mussolini's friend. Some had even escaped from concentration camps in Germany and from imprisonment in Italy to fight Hitler and Mussolini in Spain. U.S. writer John Despasos described these refugees. A feeling of energy and desperation comes from them. The dictators have stolen their world from them. They have lost their home, their families, their hopes of a living or a career, they are fighting back. Madrid's workers voted in union meetings to organize military columns. 
So did political groups. Children and women helped to build barricades, and women ran the quartermaster corps. A battalion of Spanish women guarded the Segovia Bridge. Dolores Iberir, elected to Parliament, became La Pasioneria, the voice of the resistant Spain. Her voice, blared from Madrid, her voice blared from Madrid radios. It is better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. No pasaran. They shall not pass. Facing rebel armies at the gates of Madrid were people in work clothes, armed with lunch and rifles. Their motto, no pasaran, became Spain's slogan. The courage of Madrid inspired intellectuals. Arthur George Orwell said Spain represented a thrill of hope, for here at last apparently was a democracy standing up to fascism. Arriving as a reporter, Orwell joined a Barcelona militia. The famous French author André Malraux arrived with two old bombers and a few pilots. With some more old World War I planes and pilots, he organized Spain's first air force. Germans, Italians, Belgians, Poles, Hungarians, Jews, Slavs, Bretons, and Irish stood alongside the men and women of Madrid. Some had been drafted in World War I, while others had been draft evaders. Now they had proudly picked their army and war. General Franco and his fascist allies, General Franco and his fascist allies had not counted on Madrid's resistance spirit, and neither had anyone else. Rebel General Mola boasted the city would be taken by his four columns and by a fifth column inside. He said he would have coffee in Madrid on October 12th, a national holiday. Madrid held out. His coffee grew cold. Radio Lisbon broadcast news of a triumphant General Franco riding into a defeated Madrid on a white carriage, on a white charger. Germany and Italy announced Franco would be given official recognition when he captured the city. They had to make other plans. Spain's civilian army in homestitched uniforms ended world fascism, its first defeat. With old rifles, often one to every three soldiers, they halted some of Europe's best-trained armies in front of Madrid. Spain's citizens learned they could fight, and more, they discovered they were not alone. The first Americans reached Spain long before a Lincoln Battalion was formed. Carmelo Delgado, 23, a Puerto Rican, was one of nine children born to a poor Gayama family. He shared an unheated Madrid room with two other students. Then Delgado helped form a troop to protect the city. He was captured and executed. Other early U.S. volunteers included an Italian-American editor, Jewish engineer, and athletes 
from an anti-Nazi Olympics in Barcelona. Stephen Dubuc became the first U.S. airman in Spain and the first to shoot down a German Heinkel. In early 1937, when the U.S. had only five licensed black pilots, two, James Peck and Paul Williams, arrived. Peck brought down two German Heinkels and three Italian Fiat's to become Spain's fourth-ranking U.S. ace. By the time Spain was able to rely on its own airmen, in November, U.S. pilots brought down 48 enemy planes. While volunteers poured into Spain from everywhere, the United States government and democratic governments in Europe did nothing to help. France, on England's demand, closed its border to Spain in August. England and France feared a war with Germany, and they didn't want it to start in Spain. Their governments also had high officials who approved of Hitler and believed he would fight against communism, not against democracy. England's England's non-intervention committee enlisted 26 countries in a program to block aid to Spain's legal government, but allowed Hitler and Mussolini to aid the rebels. It permitted the rebels to use the telephone exchange at British Gibraltar to keep in contact with Berlin, Rome, and Lisbon. I hope they send in enough Germans to finish the war, the British ambassador to Spain told the U.S. ambassador. Told the U.S. ambassador. American policy followed that, that of British. The U.S. even supplied most of Frankel's oil. In July, five Texas oil company tankers bound for Republican Spain were directed to rebel ports. Four-fifths of rebel trucks came from General Motors, Studbaker, and Ford. The Texas oil company, increasing the amount each year, sold Franco 1,856,000 tons of oil in all. The U.S. State Department made travel to Spain illegal in January 1937, and once even tried to prevent U.S. doctors, nurses, and medical supplies from reaching the embattled republic. Frankel's world credit was so strong, he never had to borrow money. By October 1936, the USSR and Mexico decided to help the Republic. But Mexico was too poor and far away, and the USSR had to send ships through, ships through submarine packs at sea to penetrate closed land borders. Volunteers from all over traveled to Spain by an illegal underground railroad. Its main office in, in its main office in Paris was dedicated was directed by Joseph Broz, who later became President Tito of Yugoslavia. In, European governments tried to halt it. Switzerland made talk about the civil war illegal. Scandinavian countries passed laws against travel to Spain, and Belgium acts 15 years in prison for anyone trying to reach Spain, but nothing stopped the flow.
This concludes the first chapter of the Lincoln's Gate. Can you hear me? Yep. So is that that the end of chapter one? Yes, yes it is. Um, Yeah, there's a little, uh, there were a few uh, errors I had to repeat certain sentences. But yeah, that was uh, chapter one of the Lincoln Brigade, A Picture History by William Lauren Katz and Mark Crawford. Um, Oof. Uh, sorry, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to go back to turning on the AC in this room because the studio is like above 100 degrees right now. Uh, Leslie, yes. Yes, yeah, so continue. I would like to hear your commentary uninterrupted. So I'm going to put myself on mute and listen to your take on fascism, this book, and the role that blacks played um, in the Lincoln Brigade and how it relates to what's going on today in the presidential election. Okay, that was a lot. Um, So I will begin with this. I will begin with first defining fascism, because this book talks extensively about a fight against fascism in Europe. Fascism is a political theory in which the state dominates all aspects of society with the aim of ensuring the security and viability of the state. Several major political theories share this definition. What sets fascism apart is the special nature in which fascist states have historically sought to ensure that security and viability as a state. Foremost, the fascist state is defined by corporatism. Oswald Spangler most aptly defined corporatism as a relationship between business, labor, and the state, whereby the worker serves as an economic functionary, the employer a responsible supervisory official, and the state the owner of the means of production. Fascist corporatism is complemented by collectivism, the emphasis placed on the significance of the group over that of the individual. Local corporate bodies harness the skills, talents, and intellect of the national productive force to meet the needs of the people, while also preserving the right of property, preserving the right of property, and inheritance, and fostering and rewarding innovation. In this respect, the fascist state is an alternative to the capitalist state and the communist state. Under the capitalist state, production is not explicitly driven by a social agenda to meet the needs of the people. Under the communist state, the state does not preserve the right of property and inheritance. Now, I've been asked whether Donald Trump is a fascist. Donald Trump is not a fascist. In fact, he's an anti-fascist. Rather than corporatism, he embraces capitalism. In fact, he is a staunch capitalist. He has spent his entire life being a capitalist. He fundamentally rejects corporatism. Moreover, rather than collectivist, he is, in fact, 
an individualist. Again, when we speak about collectivism, we are talking about an emphasis placed on the significance of the group over that of the individual. Concept common to mainstream Republican politics, like individual personal responsibility, the 30 or 48-year-old saying, pulling yourself up by your bootstrap, this is fundamentally against the grain of collectivism. And the capitalist framework upon which much of the Republican mainstream, and certainly Trump, uh, is a part of, fundamentally goes against the grain of corporatism. Corporatism and collectivism being chiefly distinctive of what makes fascism fascism. Um, let's see. And okay, I had to break my promise, Cecilia. Yeah. Um, well, uh, let me just uh, add one more thing here. Okay, go ahead. One more point. So, um, separately, fascism ha- is also defined by its rejection of immigration and multiculturalism for fear of the risk of loss of national identity. We see this uh, very clearly in the rhetoric of Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Augusto Pinochet, uh, General Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, and many other fascists throughout the, in fact, all fascists throughout the world have used the rhetoric of the preservation of national identity and cultural identity and religious identity and unity um, as a defining uh, call for the end, the suspension of immigration and multiculturalism. And just to, uh, again, tie this back to uh, modern Republican Party in the United States, uh, at the very least, at the very most, excuse me, they call for certain restrictions on certain types of immigration, not an outright rejection of immigration and multiculturalism, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. And, and just finally, uh, fascism is defined by uh, expansionary militarism, uh, which has been historically rooted in the desire of fascist states to reclaim lost territories. Uh, and, and okay, so uh, Leslie, uh, I've okay. summed up, yeah, and we'll talk about the other things in a bit, but go ahead. All right. Um, I just wanted to get your take on the Supreme Court ruling that said that corporations can now become donors in uh, political campaigns, and they are now viewed as individuals, as a right. person while at the same time individual rights are being taken away as far as voting. So what do you think that falls out there? All right. So there's, there are several things to unpack, and I'll be very concise in unpacking them. Uh, the Supreme Court real ruling that you are referring to is the case of Citizens United versus FEC, the Federal Election Commission. The Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission Supreme Court ruling decided that uh, a corporation has specific rights, like a person has a certain amount of uh, inalienable specific rights. And of those rights is the right of a corporation as an entity, uh, a private entity, uh, or, well, a, not necessarily a private entity, some corporations technically private entities uh, in the form of limited, limited partnerships, other entities are owned by the public i.e. through the shareholders of the corporation, uh, that a corporation has the uh, right 
um, to uh, contribute to a political campaign. Um, now, what do I think about that? Well, it's important to understand that in a representative democracy, uh, what defines a representative democracy is the society's of exactly who it is has the right to vote, has the right to contribute, to contribute to political life. And in the United States, the United States has decided that to some extent, uh, corporations have certain rights to engage in political life, specifically uh, through campaign contributions. Now, we should understand that this is not merely a right uh, that is uh, granted to corporations, but also one that is granted to unions and other what we would consider major interest groups. Um, and we can talk about that as well uh, when, if, we can, if, we, if we want to go in depth about what collectivism means and how that relates to fascism, we can leave that out of the picture. But essentially, corporations, unions, other major interest groups, organizations of people have a right or have particular rights to engage in political life. And that's what that ruling decided, and one of those rights being the right to donate to political campaigns. Um, I personally am opposed to this. I'm opposed to this because as it's played out, it has lent its, lent its hand to uh, certain, uh, a certain potential, a certain greater potential to political corruption, um, and that's a long thing, so I won't get into that. But um, okay, I'm, I'm opposed to it for certain particular reasons. But yeah, that's fair enough. You don't want to get into that. Um, yeah. Now, when you look at uh, Trump's campaign, mm-hmm. he, he boasts about not be, not having to have to pay. Not having what? He he doesn't have to pay for all the press coverage. He's he's spending very very little money, and mm-hmm. not saying anything of substance for mm-hmm. all the press time he um he's gotten for free. Mm-hmm. Now the corporations own the media. He is a corporate man. The combination of the two have hijacked the American psyche. Now, when you look at the, the, the definition of fascism, of what? do you do you see any parallels where the media is now run by the corporation and the leader who they choose? is what we would call or consider to be a fascist. Well, again, um, we have to look at what defines a fascist. Trump is fundamentally an anti-fascist. He rejects corporatism in favor of capitalism. He rejects collectivism in favor of collectivism in favor of individualism. Uh, What it means to be a fascist is to embrace these very specific, well, not specific, but certain features, because mind, mind you, fascism doesn't have core tenets. What fascism, fascism reflects is uh, a local trend of certain states to engage in certain behaviors which we have come to define as fascism, such as corporatism and collectivism. 
And again, Trump is the, quite the opposite. He's an anti-fascist. He embraces capitalism and individualism. I think, over I, I think, we're, I think what we're getting confused is that you're trying to dif- dif- differentiate between a capitalist and a corporate person. They're all synonymous. That's one. You can't separate them. You can't be a corporate person and not be a capitalist. He is corporate is the definition of uh, of a fascist. They are pro corporation, and capitalists are also about corporations. Right. So well, capitalism. Well, yeah. Well, okay. So let me let me break this down. So corporatism. Even though you're hearing that word, corporate doesn't have anything to do with corporation. Those two things are not the same. Corporatism, it shares a similar name to corporation, but they mean two very different things. What, a, what corporatism is, again, is corporatism is quite simply uh, the, um, uh, a political theory in which the relationship between business, labor, and the state is such. Uh, workers serve as an economic functionary. The employers are the responsible uh, supervisory official, and it is the state that is the owner of the means of production, meaning, for example, the government, the federal government of the United States under a corporatist state, the federal government of the United States owned Walmart. The federal government of the, of the United States would own GE. The federal government of the United States would own McDonald's, and all of these other what we call corporations would be owned by the government. We don't live in that society. Uh, the government doesn't own these corporations. Shareholders own these corporations, right? Uh, and so what, what corporatism is, is a, uh, a, a it is, well, fascistic corporatism, uh, specifically in, in these contexts, is where the state owns these businesses and where the employers, the people who we see today as the owners of production, are merely supervisory officials appointed by the state. So um, imagine in, in a corporatist society, uh, the government uh, would be uh, the owners of businesses, and they would elect a corporate board. They would elect the employees. They would, uh, and, and, uh, and 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 that's what a corporatist society is. That's what corporatism is. Um, okay. So All it's right. where, right? So so corporatism and corporation are two very different things. In fact, they're almost different. They're almost opposites in the context that we're referring to a free market versus uh, the fascist corporatist uh, model. So, okay, well, what, what, um, right. Mr. Ben, what do you have to say about corporations um, taking over government entities? Now, you just spoke of um, the government taking over mm-hmm. corporate bodies. Now, let's right. talk about the flip side, That's corporate. which is happening right now where right. all of the agencies are now being, government agencies, are now being um, are run by private corporations. So you right. have actually, that, that right there let's, speaks. Let's, let's, let me finish. You actually okay. have, you have right now, which is a hot topic, the privatization yeah. of most of the prisons. Right. Which, in effect, is cascading mm-hmm. into these mass killings of unarmed men because the police officers have to have a quota, maintain mm-hmm. a quota, and by maintaining mm-hmm. the quota, they have to criminalize people to keep mm-hmm. these private private prisons full mm-hmm. just so that the owners of corporations can make a profit. Right. So what type of 
uh, business do you call? I mean, what type of government do you call that? And do you identify Trump ideology with that? Right. Yes. So, so yes to the very last question. And so here's what I'm going to say. That actually explains perfectly, uh, more succinctly, what I was saying before. So you can think of corporatism as government-owning corporations, and then you can think of capitalism as corporations take, uh, privatizing government. So the privatization of government is moving more towards a capitalist society. Capitalism is defined by the private ownership, ownership of the means of production. So by having uh, government services move to... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.